Welcome to episode four of Omega Mail. I'm your host, Dan McKenzie, and let me tell you, they broke the proverbial mold when they made today's guest, Mr. Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen is a culture activist, a storyteller, an award-winning author of seven books, including his most recent title, A Generation's Worth, Spirit Work While the Crisis Reigns, which I personally just dug into a few days ago and I'm already utterly spellbound by. He's also the subject of the 2008 full-feature documentary film, Grief Walker. I first encountered Stephen three years ago as an audience member of his touring tent show revival musical storytelling ceremony called Nights of Grief and Mystery, which uprooted, upended, and uplifted me all at once. Stephen has worked extensively with dying people and their families, um, but to me, more than anything else, he is a true elder in the wisest, most sacred sense of the word. You must visit his website, orphanwisdom.com, to learn everything else about him. Meanwhile, I'd like to transition to the conversation we shared by treating you to a very brief passage from Plague Document, the preface to Stephen's book, A Generation's Worth, in which he provides a kind of poetic context for the content that constitutes the book itself. These are not, despite the dating, journal entries. These are dispatches flung over the acrylic barricades of these isolating days. I was thinking of you, the decipherer, most of the time. When you bear people in mind, a crypto-commerce can appear a kind of kinship shorthand, and I held myself to brevity. Severity may have been the result. Dispatches are little witnessings, pleadings for consideration. They are testimonies banking on wonder and the likelihood of a near future. They are refusals to go it alone. Let me begin by saying, uh, just expressing some gratitude. I know people toss around the phrase and probably toss it around you a lot that it's an honor to be speaking with you. But I want to say it's not truly just an honor because of the spiritual heft that I feel you are bringing to this, but also the gesture in and of itself that despite my being somewhat familiar and increasingly familiar with your work and your being, you really don't know me from Adam. And this is not <laughs> a particularly high profile podcast or anything. So there's a generosity in, in your gesture of offering your time. And so I'm honored both by uh, what you are bringing and also just your gesture of bringing it. Thank you. Well, I, I consider this to be a fair trade then. All right. I like that. So let's just try to find a crossover between the general theme of this podcast and your wisdom. Okay. You don't strike me as the kind of person who would sort of hang his hat on any particular ism or philosophy or religion, but you have kind of brought up the word mythopoetic enough times for me to infer that maybe there's a kind of kinship there. And so I wonder if just by introducing that term as an entryway, I could just ask you, how do you see your relationship to the so-called men's movement and the mythopoetic angle? Well, I'll start with the mythopoetic aspect first. Um, I don't understand that to be a position, uh, a stance, a uh, particular kind of take on things, uh, a quantitative uh, posture. I understand it to be a quality of approach to that you can bring to bear upon uh, everything that crosses your path. And so you could imagine it, as I do, as a kind of it's a spirit of inquiry that has discipline rather than grievance that, ma that animates it. And this is, a, it's, I think, a, a vital and a, a beautiful distinction to make in a time like this, which is so rancorous and so divided and so uh, devoted to, um, to the blistering of the other guy, you know, all that sort of thing. The beautiful thing about uh, mythopoetics is that there's no argument to be found in it if it's being exercised devoutly. 
It's a, basically, it's a storytelling proposition. It's a story seeing and hearing proposition and finally a living, story living proposition. And the reason I make that distinction from argument, story from argument, that is, is that, um, <clears throat> you know, if, if you're trying to re reiterate to somebody who wasn't there how an argument went, you might be able to do it for a while, but you're going to lose steam, largely because you can't quite remember how it went. That's very illustrative of something, which I think is architectural in the mind or the psyche of humans. I mean, we're given to argument. We're prone to argument. But I'm not, it's not clear to me that we're built for argument. So here's the distinction I'd make. If I tell you a story today, not a, you know, once upon a time, not even a story that officially announces itself as a story, just a, a vignette, you know, an aside, but a story nonetheless. And you try to recreate it in five days' time. You may not, quote, remember how it goes, but any thread you pick up of an aspect of what you remember that I said and begin to tell that part of it as, you know, as faithfully as you can, you find that the thing magically reestablishes itself during the course of your fitful telling to the point where the story tells itself and leans upon your, your good faith attempt to, 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 uh, to manifest it. That's an extraordinary difference from argumentation, I think. Stories are, are built the way the human psyche seems to be built. That's, that's the way our real inclination goes. Even if you don't mean to storytell, in the act of making yourself understood, more often than not, you will, quote, resort to stories. So that's pretty good news, I think. So what's the relationship then, as you've asked me, to, uh, to uh, men's work, as I would call it? Well, I, I'm old enough to remember the so-called men's movement, and I don't say so-called because there was no such thing. Uh, clearly, there was such a thing. Uh, I'm not sure that it was a singular thing, so I'm not sure that you shouldn't at least pluralize the word movement. I think I might have said so-called in my question, too, because uh, I... You might I, have done, sure. Because I, I do see sure. that I, it, there's, there are many... It's more of a delta than a river, you could say. Uh, so this implies a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of sludge, a lot of, you know, turgid water. That's true, too. That certainly was true then. So what's the interlacing between mythopoetics and men's work? Ideally and properly... Uh, men are best served by understanding themselves as being inhabited by not an identity, but a sequence of um, possibilities and allegations uh, that the world could use at a time like this. In other, it's not a it's not a way of elevating oneself. It's a way of understanding that the that the troubles of the times are not nearly as much um, uh, personal travail as they are invitation to a kind of seminal and, and purpose-driven work, right? And, and I, by work, I do not mean um, mindless forehead-to-the-glass kind of work. I mean the willingness to encounter deeply unwelcome things about what you thought you knew. That's the clutch of possibilities that I'm referring to. So if that's what men's work is, uh, that's what this man's work is, certainly, then, you know, I'm all for happy to be aligned and associated with it to the extent that it veers off in the direction of identity and therefore identity politics and grudge matches and finding the straw dog enemy that makes you feel more substantial and um, or the extraordinary degrees of self-hatred that men are, are uh, in, induced towards now and encouraged to and rewarded for entering into. Uh, that's a gross departure from what I'm talking about. Has no place uh, in, in, has no merit as far as I'm concerned. And um, 
I mean, if if you think it's been bad, you know, in the last 40 years, another 40 years of shaming uh, all things masculine uh, is asking for it. Yeah, I would like to dig into that a little bit more. Okay. I want to sort of put a pin in the question that that gave rise to in my mind by asking you first to elaborate on what you meant by allegations in that sentence, because you said possibilities and allegations, and I wasn't quite, uh-huh. I understood the possibilities part, but I didn't understand the allegations part. Yeah. Well, allegations, to my understanding, uh, take the following form. There's certain um, ten, certain claims, certain sort of tangential claims to be made on behalf of masculinity. I'll just put it, I'll use the word masculinity as a catch-all phrase for a lot of things right now. And it's not clear that uh, anybody should be able to be exhaustive or authoritative about what actually constitutes masculinity. After all, if it's not an identity, but principally a function, which is my understanding of it, then it doesn't reside or it doesn't rest in a particular incarnation. It, it employs the incarnation, and then when the employment is, do, is done, it moves on. Yeah? So allegations is, is another way of allowing the soft edges of what I allude to there, their proper uh, place in the understanding, and not hard and fast distinctions for example, that allow you to distinguish between masculine and feminine. I don't think that these are um, razor-sharp borders. I think these are very uh, permeable kinds of borders, and there's a certain degree of mingling there, you know, as, as is proper. I mean, if there weren't, then you and I as, as quote, masculine people would have a extraordinarily difficult time bordering on the impossible to have a a, a meaningful, compelling, and world-serving relationship with anything that wasn't masculine. Anyone who wasn't masculine. That's what I mean. Yeah. Well, that all resonates with me. My desire to participate in this dialogue, let's call it the contemporary dialogue related to men's work, arose out of kind of a you could call it a perfect storm a couple of years ago. The Me Too movement, of course, being the sort of most high-profile phenomenon that brought this dialogue back into the foreground, but also the election of Donald Trump as president and kind of an arising of misogynist, homophobic empowerment. Then, of course, the police violence incidents and the ensuing Black Lives Matter movement. There was just a lot of noise around the misbehavior of men. And at the same time, I was becoming a father to a boy. And so I was deeply contemplating fatherhood and how I was going to step into this role. And and I was experiencing um, a lot of concern over types of behavior associated with men. And so that's when I started investigating the men's movement. And I found that there was a little bit of polarization in the men's movement. I love how you've presented the mythopoetic. And certainly that's a direction in which I was leaning. But in my Mm -hmm. historical research about it, it was sort of like the pro-feminist men's movement was pitted against the mythopoetic. And there seemed to be some residual tension as if the value that exists in both of those streams couldn't coexist. And I think that's what maybe prompted me to step into this dialogue because it didn't seem to me that the one excluded the other. Here I am raising a boy and I look at this boy and I want him to have all of the qualities that are traditionally associated with masculinity, right? Having boundaries, empowerment, the ability to lead and um, and to be stoic when the going gets tough. But I also want to evince in him, in whatever way I actually can as a parent, qualities that are traditionally considered feminine, compassion, sensitivity, emotional self-expression, intuition. Those seem to me both useful for, for boys and girls and for men and women. Mm-hmm. So... How does that play into what you're talking about? <laughs> you bailed at the end of that question, man. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Oh, I won't bail. I okay. see sometimes in some of the things I've encountered in the mythopoetic movement, uh, yeah. this fear of feminizing boys. And that's the one huh. thing about it that I 
that gave me pause and made me feel like there was an emptiness that the pro-feminist side was trying to fill in. Because I feel like my gut is that there is no chance of feminizing a boy if you're just adding to the capacities the so-called masculine. If you're replacing the masculine and if, you are re- if you're coming from a reactionary point of view where you're, you're declaring that all that is masculine is bad and responsible for the evil in the world, I understand then that fear. But if you're actually just teaching both boys and girls that these things that have been separated by gender might be beneficial to all. Okay, so uh, here's what bedevils your question. I mean, I've jokingly said you bailed, but here's what bedevils the attempt to ask what I think you're trying to get to. If you're willing to use certain phrases and in so doing buy into the notion that everything properly divides up into things masculine and things feminine, that there's such a thing as ideas that are masculine or feminine. There's such a thing as abilities and skills and tendencies. And so, and you just start going down the list. Um, are there kinds of trees that are, are there, there aspects of physics, which are masculine and feminine. And, and I don't think that pushes things ridiculously at all. What I'm saying is this, I'm not persuaded at all that the world divides up into these terms. Even English grammar acknowledges that there's at least a third thing, which we call neuter, unfortunately. But um, I suspect that the world refuses to bifurcate and still be a world. So I think we do life and ourselves a disservice by invoking a language that, that without even wondering about its own methods, starts to divide things up neatly but but absolutely um, injuriously in terms of masculine and feminine. Because when you do, then you end up with a legitimately asked question, like, should I feminize my son? You know, whatever the hell, I mean, the term, the, the definition of the terms aside for a minute, but the ability to ask the question and to formulate it that way, and then to, to compel yourself or, or, or perhaps myself in this case, to answer in those terms, to consider your son as, as a proto-feminized something, as somebody's either in need of being feminized or has to be in some fashion um, baptized against overly being feminized. You see, and on and friggin' on it goes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I don't know if you didn't notice that nowhere in your characterization did the word human show up. Okay, so... I'm not sure that humans properly are best understood as either masculine or feminine. I can tell you this, though, as, a, as an act of memory of those days. I'm talking about the early so-called men's movement stuff. Um, this was no, no news to anybody. There were certain titular heads, ter- certain featured um, faces that were associated with that business. And, and of course, Robert Bly would be principal in that number. And then there was slightly lesser luminaries that gathered around him and so forth. And he was married to a Jungian feminist, uh, excuse me, a Jungian analyst who may indeed have been a feminist. I don't know. And, and that association he had at home fed directly into his work so that by the time you began to hear about it, well, perhaps not you because you were too young at the time, but as it began to crest and as Iron John and so on crested, what you had is, is a lot of, I would use the word infiltration of Jungian archetypal psychology, although it wasn't always self-identified as such, but it did present itself over and over and over again as not only a legitimate way of thinking about these things, but actually the way things were. See, so the thing you're, you're concerned about, you're imagining that there was some kind of polarity and some kind of oppositional interaction, that concern with the feminine was there as early as I remembered. It was, I would, I would go on to say, it was always there. Concern doesn't mean concern about um, undue influence by or of the feminine. Quite the contrary, really. There was a lot of invitation, and you could even say the practice of Jungian archetypal psychology and thinking was itself 
an act of feminizing the inquiry. And I think the people who practice it would, would, be, would easily sign up for that characterization. So what you hear me doing here is acknowledging a couple of things. First of all, were there those kinds of divisions fairly early on? Uh, let's say yes. I mean, surely there were places and times where those kinds of obstacles would have appeared and where inside, you know, a large orchestrated week-long meeting of men there would both of these sides would manifest, um, contend, somewhat dissolve, and and uh, reconstitute themselves in other ways. Yeah, sure, I'm sure that happened frequently and over and over again. Very good practice, very good exercise, I would say. But I wouldn't marry any of those things. I wouldn't myself subscribe to to this being a legitimate way of understanding oneself and, and one's place and one's work in the world, that uh, to, to settle for the notion that you have to self-identify as um, prim principally a masculine being and in so doing, certain things are unavailable to you by definition. Certain skillfulnesses of being a human being are are lost to you as a consequence. The only way you could have them in your life is, you guessed it, get up alongside somebody who does have those things in spades or who would appear to because their physiognomy suggests that they probably have what you don't have kind of thing. And am I talking about heterosexual relationships? Of course I am. Am I excluding any other possibility? I doubt it. Yeah. I doubt it. So all of this goes to say that I think we should be deeply circumspect and uncertain about ourselves when we start to use a globalizing language like masculine and feminine, and then want to use that, those two things as, as um, calipers. You know the word calipers, what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, by which we, we understand, measure, and, and grade Every proposition, every idea, every dilemma, every overreach, every governmental uh, obscenity, and, you know, all things in between. Look, um, you know, I'm not in your country, so I don't, I don't have the associations that you sound like you have with electing a kind of Trump thing, you know. And, but when I look at the at the buffoonery and the obscenity, which was that whole apparition from a distance as, as an outsider, I have to say to you, masculine is not the first thing that comes to mind. In fact, you're close to the last thing that would come to mind. Yeah. As I watched the whole thing unfold, I didn't say to myself, Whoa, there's some masculinity run amok. Didn't even occur to me. So you could, or somebody who's argumentatively inclined could say, well, of course you wouldn't see it that way because you got blinkers. <laughs> and which, to which I'd say, well, there's no retort to that, you know. Um, but I would say that um, I think I have a certain capacity. And the capacity include the ability to distinguish between a world-serving human masculine person who's inclined to serve the world principally by understanding fatherhood in its broadest understanding it is the broadest definition that fatherhood is a is a quality of citizenship it's not a quality of gender it's an aspect of the fundamental responsibilities of citizenship that's the way i've come to understand it and so did I see that in, in full malignant full during the course of that four-year regime in your country? Nope, I didn't. So do I think this is masculinity run amok? Uh-uh. I think what it was is something instead of masculinity. I'm in agreement with you there. All of it resonated, particularly the piece about being uncertain about what even constitutes masculine and feminine. And in a sense, I want to say my question was and is coming from that murkiness that place of well, what what is really 
masculinity and femininity. Like you, I'm intrigued by uh, language. So for me, a question has been, is it useful to just not use these terms, or at least to divorce these terms from things where they seem erroneously applied, or to reposition ourselves with regard to these terms so that we look at them differently. But a piece that I heard you talk about, which might play into this in an interesting way, is this term patriarchy, right? This is one of the things that has arisen in the aftermath of the Me Too movement as a dirty word. And I, I can sort of see both sides of this, and I wonder if we could just dig into that a little bit. Is it the archy part that people have a problem with, the ruling part? Okay. Well, uh, let me go back a couple of sentences and then come to the last part of what you've asked. So your, your, your uh, proto question, the one that came before, was something along the lines of, would we, doing, would we be doing ourselves a favor by giving our habitual, almost reflex, uh, resorting to these coded, codifying words, arrest? Would we? Hell yeah, we would. Why? Well, first of all, you know, when you start using masculine, feminine, when you start using patriarchy, you never hear the word matriarchy, by the way, virtually never if you're not a sociologist or an anthropologist. Come on now. It's true. Where's the inclusivity now? Yeah. Anyway. Right. So what I'm saying is there's a, there's a degree of sloth, intellectual and emotive sloth that comes in automatically when you start trafficking in words that you don't assume the full responsibility for their burden, their gravity, their weight, their, the, the shite that they carry along with them, etc. right? And you use it just like blunt force trauma instruments. And before you know it, you got weapons grade assault that's masquerading as, as a debate or discussion. Well, that's all comes from the undigested unwillingness to take responsibility for employing terms that work so well for you in the short term as, you know, assault weapons, as, um, as shaming darts and all the rest. And, and you're not even there to pick up the pieces afterwards, after you've, you know, engaged in your search and destroy mechanism with using this kind of language. So do I think we'd be all better served not by giving them a rest because they're strong. That's why it's the slot that comes with their use. It's the habituation without the willingness to be ongoingly engaged in the consequence of doing so. Okay, so th- that's my answer to the first part. And you hear me doing it ongoingly in every interview that I agree to do and and uh, every every school session that I used to have when the good old days when we used to be able to accumulate uh, and will again this year, I think. <clears throat> I give myself the task of coming anew to the consideration before us. I don't traffic in position papers or talking points. I'm not trying to, quote, get somewhere. As people will often say to you as a way of damning you with faint praise. So what you're trying to say is, and I usually at some point will say gently, actually, I'm not trying to say anything. At this point in the proceedings, I'm saying, I'm saying it. Yeah, I hear okay. that. I do. I can hear the difference of why you would say it that way. Because the idea is, if I was, if, if you could understand me immediately, then I'm saying something. But if you don't understand me immediately, then I'm the one who's trying to say something and not doing a very good job of it, you see. But I have some facility with the language now. I've had a lot of practice, and and I'm not shy about acknowledging that that's so. So there's a big responsibility that comes with the skillfulness about speaking well. There is. It's not not uh, an opportunity to skate rings around somebody. That's not why you have it. You have it to do your best to democratize the little bits of wisdom come to you occasionally. Not convert people. Democratize the wisdom that gathers in the language. So you're redispersing it, you see? That's what it means to be able to speak well. 
doesn't mean you you prevail over the person you're speaking with. It means that really real prevailing means that everybody wins if you want to use that kind of simplistic language. You you, you come to a, a level of discussion wherein things begin to appear that had uh, heretofore been been masked and hidden or worse by the misuse of the language. Everybody wins when you do that. People's capacity to think another thought, a, a, a more challenging thought, a more ambivalence-making thought, or God help us, an unthinkable thought, is enhanced by anybody's willingness to take their skill and lend it to the common cause, their verbal skill, that is. So that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm advocating. And on my better moments, that's what I'm practicing. Because as they will say in the funny papers, dude, them's fighting words. You say mm -hmm. patriarchy now. Right, yeah. Might, might as well take a minute on this word. So I'm, you know, in the, in the rancor contest, I don't do it. I will, I will be stand accused, condemned, and found guilty routinely amongst people who say it's a, it's a wasted opportunity if you don't assassinate the patriarchy every chance you get. The patriarchy, not my phrase. At which point I say, oh, there's so many people doing that. Uh, they don't need me. They, don't, they got plenty of assassins at work day and night, you know? They got plenty of snipers in the bushes. They don't need me. I wouldn't even be that good at it. So what my self-appointed task is, is a departure from that, not a rancorous flipping the bird or attack of that, just simply a departure. So I look at the word. What a, what a novel proposition. I actually look at the word since it's the word that's being used. And you and I both know it's dragging acres of anguish and accusation and everything in between every time the word appears. You're almost powerless to detoxify the word long enough to talk about it as a word. But I'm not powerless to do so. I can try. So here we go. And this is not me making shit up. This is me reporting to you faithfully. The word patriarch is made of two words, right? And the first word is not masculine. It's not man. It's not male. Yikes. I thought it was all one. I know most people do, but that's not what it says. The, the, the prefix of the word is father. That's different. Because certain things have to be in place in order for you to be a father, do they not? And not all of them are of your doing. Isn't it true? There has to be something on the receiving end of your fathering for you to be one. You can't be a father. You can't be an honorary father. You got to be fathering. And right away you realize, oh my God, fatherhood is not an identity. Fatherhood is a function. Okay, it's a way of doing things. It's not a thing that you do. And it's certainly not something you are. You pass in and out of the vapor trail of fatherhood on the course of a, one given day. You're not fathering all the time. You're just not. And it's good that you're not. So, fathering is the first part of the word. And the second part of the word does not mean ruling. It is a very late, I, sh I shouldn't say it doesn't mean that. I should say it's a very late characterization of that word. The old order meaning of the A-R-C-H, we find it in that shape, the architectural shape. We find it in the word architecture. We find it in the word archery and arc across the sky. We find it in archaic. Wow, what's going on here? Where's all the ruler stuff now? What's, what's happened to the easy to digest, easy to assassinate with functionality of archie? Where is it gone? Well, it's there. Don't you worry. It's there anytime you want to pick it up again. But for the purposes of actually learning the word, this is amazing observation to make. So the best way I can give you the fulsome Greek understanding, because the Greeks gave us the word, is to say this. 
So we have this shape in architecture, right? Mostly they're squared off now, like the one right behind you is a squared off shape. And so it doesn't really register as an art, but, but it is, it's a, it's a kind of arch that's lost its fluid uh, uh, sim, uh, geometry. So, the, so you could say, where's the arch? Well, it's the whole shape. Okay, but where's the, if you will, what makes the arch, the arch and not accumulation of stones? And some clever person would likely say, oh, it's the keystone at the top of the arch. The keystone, it's called a keystone because it keeps everything in place. And that's be the arch and therefore the archie that you're talking about. And I would say, very good guess, but no. So, so then, so is it the, the two sides coming up and meeting in the middle of the, well, you're kind of close, but not really. So is it the stone that everything sits upon closer still? The A-R-C-H suffix refers to those foundational aspects to the shape that allow the shape to perform its remarkable, almost magical function above ground. The archi is actually the below ground, the substrate um, stabilizing, enduring presence that doesn't that doesn't is not ex typically exposed to the light. That's what it means. That's why we find the word in a temporal uh, association like archaic, like um, okay, I'll just leave it there for now. So archaic means very old, right? Almost un outdated old. Well, where do you get very old from, given the, the shape that I've just described to you? Answer is, old is not really old in time. Old means not quite visible from where you are in your present moment. That's right. It's subliminal. It's underneath the edge of everything you're aware of. And that's why we have the word in English to understand. If you've ever wondered about it, or if you haven't, you get, here's your chance. Right, right. Why is there a spatial dimension to this function of understanding? Now you know why. Because it's related dynamically and ontologically to the function of archetype. Okay? Or architecture or patriarchy. You have to stand under something to have any understanding of it. And that's what the archi does. So it's not ruling. It's sustaining from below. It's not dominance from above, you see. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to use most of the old associations of the word and have to mean anything. But I'm, I'm not speaking Greek to you. I'm speaking English, and you can recognize everything I'm saying. It's neither Greek metaphorically nor literally, but yes. Let's talk about that distinction between support and dominance. It strikes me in hearing you talk about this so beautifully that a lot of the problem that people have are looking at human history as if human beings and human societies were always the same and to be judged by the right. same criteria, or they're trying to look at different periods in history through the lens of now. And so if you look at every period in history through the lens of now, and you see that most governors were men, most of the power was in men's hands, and most of the land was held by men, it's easy to say, well, women have always been on the crappy end of the deal. Just to it's use easy to say that. It's not accurate to yeah, say Yeah, yeah, no, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm getting at. I don't think it's yeah. accurate because that view doesn't acknowledge the plain fact of evolution. And so I think if we go back further and further in time and condemn former societies for being out of step or out of harmony from the values that we have now, then we're not really understanding how we got here. And I think if we go further back and acknowledge that part of the human that is like an animal, and we acknowledge parts of our earlier history where the function of men and women in societies we're much more connected to our biological differences, right? Back when, to, I'm really oversimplifying now, but just, but if we go back to a time when the men had to go out and kill animals and the women had to stay in the cave and protect the family, right? Our, our functions were much more connected to our biology. We live in a society now, obviously, where men and women uh, have occupations that have nothing to do with our 
particular biological dispositions. Um, you know, women are, are soldiers and men are uh, homemakers, etc. There's a greater interchangeability. And so there's been evolution. But are there aspects of the inherited stuff? Let's strip away all the blame language of patriarchy and toxic masculinity. Are there artifacts of the old biologically driven social constructs that are worth transforming. And this is what I meant in referring to Donald Trump. And I think you could say Vladimir Putin as well. I would never claim that those men represent masculinity run amok. But what I might say is those are two glaring examples of what I would call the alpha male concept of masculinity run amok. I would draw a connection between the sort of caveman to whom a dominance hierarchical structure of society was more organic. And what I'm envisioning, when you said earlier the win-win, that to me is the picture of the future. Is it possible to move past the dominance hierarchy ordering of society towards something that is a more communally, globally oriented, from competition to collaboration, from dominance to mutual support and acknowledgement. Is there something atavistic about the leadership style of someone like Putin or Trump that is so much geared by the compulsion to dominate? Don't they in some way represent something archaic in that dominance at all costs thing? And I'm not trying to tie this to men anymore, but I do tie it to sort of our biological inheritance as men. So just two things in response to all of that, uh, which may not be up to what you asked or in the way that you asked it, but let's see. The first one is the evocation of the word biological to characterize as, you know, the ideas that you're asking it to carry. The reason I'd, I'd uh, suggest caution in employing the word biological is because, and then used organic as a, a close synonym later on. The dilemma I hear with, uh, with employing biological as a characterization, as a shorthand for all of those things, is there's a, there's a degree of bordering on the inevitable, the reflexive, the involuntary, the, that part of our, our way of being ourselves that somehow short circuits or circumvents certain degree of choice and therefore of responsibility and chalks it up to what are you going to do because it's in the circuitry. Do I think there's such a thing as circuitry? Yeah, sure I do. Do I think that there's certain things that come as a consequence of being bipedal and all the other manifestations? Of course, of course there are. And is there an aspect to us that by which we assume a degree of responsibility for acting, quote, involuntarily. Yes, I do. And so I'm just leery that when you speak just about biology, then the notion of responsibility, which is normally associated only with elected behavior, but involuntary behavior you can't be, quote, responsible for. I mean, you know, to, to make, not that you were saying this, but a very coarse uh, uh, alignment would be, years ago, I used to work in... Uh, domestic violence trade, if you will, before it was even really called anything. And I can tell you the principal um, defense that men who'd been violent with the people they claimed to love employed was exactly this, that it came out of nowhere, that, that they didn't mean to do it, that it, was, that it was somehow for the moment larger than them and that they had no choice to exercise, you know, involuntary and all the rest. It's not very far away from saying biological, even though that's not what you meant by it, but it certainly cuts that way in the common and uncritical discourse. Yeah. It was very hard to plant a, a, a notion of personal responsibility for personal behavior in a circumstance where everything was hydraulics. You see. So, and, th and then before you know it, you're, you got a rape defense that's virtually the same kind of thing. Okay, and, and of course, neither one of us would agree that it's a legit, there is any legitimate defense. 
I think I must have just not been clear because I think I was trying to say the opposite. The implication was that I acknowledge, as you do, that there's a kind of circuitry. This is, I guess, where I observe, I intuit, I sense that part of the task and the possibility for humans lies in not being slave to whatever that circuitry is and the biology is. Do you you feel like there's such a thing as an immutable human nature or do you feel like we're evolving and then that kind of thing is a possibility? And do we have any agency in it? I mean... I think we've lost a lot of people in the last 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so. <laughs> largely because, because these, these things are now being rendered out ideationally. Mm. So let me see if I can speak to what you're asking without, quote, answering it, certainly not by contending with it. Okay. By, by marrying it to the question that I never got to get to prior to that one, which is the, the Putin uh, question. Right. Who do I think who I think he is? So I think you'll recognize the kinship between me trying to answer both questions at once as follows. Let me put it this way. If Putin was a man, as I understand, men. And if he was a patriarch in the understanding of the term, as I tried to give you some feel for it earlier, then his translation of that function is likely to follow some kind of line like this. He has certain concerns about his fellows. Yes. Who are his fellows? Well, territorially and and recent history and kinship ties-wise, it would be, quote, Russians. But already the thing is breaking down, is it not? Because even in Ukraine, what's a Russian to a Ukrainian? And there's, you know, the, 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 not the buffer land, but the, the area close to the borders, there's a lot of back and forth in terms of procreation, in terms of cultural sharing and, and, and all the rest. And, you know, uh, predominantly Russian-speaking places that are inside t- territory Ukraine or were until fairly recently. All of these things beg the question, how does one act on one's patriarchal responsibility? My answer would be, if it was employed in full, then his understanding of his responsibility would include the following. To go to war with my, with the people I've made my necessary enemy. This program of denazification, for example. If I were to employ the fullness of my patriarchal responsibility, my world-serving responsibility, I would recognize, among other things, the deep convenient fact that me acting parochially would have consequences for my fellows that the patriarchal part of me could not defend, could not get behind, could not align itself with. What does it look like in real terms? It looks like this. You go to war, you kill people, right? So now, in the, in the, if there's an elegant understanding of war or a spiritual understanding of war, it must include the following. That by virtue of killing other people, mostly men, but in these days, far from, certainly only men. But when you do so, you create a scheme of ragged, disparate dependencies that were not there before you killed these people. In other words, you've created dependence where there were once life partners and, you know, children and, and uh, elder, uh, elders and so on. And so what does it mean? It means you, you as the killer have assumed the responsibility for the maintenance of those dependents. That's the elegance of war, very simply stated. And this does what? it mitigates your instinct to go to war as it surely should, you see? And if there's a limited conflict and there are deaths that ensue, then one of your responsibilities, since you claim to have acted on the patriarchal obligation to defend your own, now includes assuming the responsibility for having done so. 
And that includes assuming the obligation to sustain and maintain the dependence that you've created by the deaths that you inflicted. And if that's what happened, that's what I would characterize his action as, a deeply patriarchal act. What you have here is the utter absence of any patriarchal understanding of what the responsibilities of a head of state should actually be. This is what, this is what poverty actually looks like. It's not just a vacancy, it's dangerous. Please go ahead. I'm grateful that you took the sort of etymological analysis of patriarchy that you so elegantly indulged me in earlier and gave it an example. Yeah. So I appreciate that, your contextualization, and hopefully we, we uh, won some, some listeners back from that. Uh, um, <laughs> so I think we're almost out of time, but let me just, uh, before you log off, thank you genuinely so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom. I aspire to elderhood someday, and uh, you're providing a great example. And uh, for me, having these conversations that are challenging and fumbling where you are able to be precise are all part of that training in a way. I feel like I'm in in elderhood training with you to some degree, uh, benefiting from your wisdom. So thank you for sharing that. And I hope we get to speak again. Thank you very much. Take care, Stephen. Thank you. Take care. So that concludes episode four of Omega Male with Stephen Jenkinson. What an incredibly special man. Again, please check out his website, orphanwisdom.com, where all of his books are available in various formats, and you will also find information about the upcoming Nights of Grief and Mystery Tour. It's going to be a world tour spanning four continents, and trust me, you owe it to yourself to see this life-changing show. That's it. Thanks so much for listening. Follow us by pressing the follow button on the podcast. Please recommend us to other people. Please check out future episodes. And if you'd like to contact me, Dan McKenzie, just drop a line to Omega Mail Says, O-M-E-G-A-M-A-L-E-S-A-Y-S at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Omega Mail Says. I'm not a huge tweeter, Twitter, tweeter, to be honest, but if I get more followers, maybe that'll change.